Welcome to Creative Wally, episode 35. My name is DK, I'm the creative producer and founder of Creative Wally. This is a unique video podcast. Check us out on creativewally.com. You're obviously listening to the audio podcast, you're very welcome doing this, but check out the video podcast, it's kind of cool. Anyway, big shout out to the guy who produces that video podcast, which is Jono over at Empire Films. And thanks also to David at Flashdog Studios for hosting us as well. In this episode, we get to chat and get to know Frida Wells, who's a creator, communications advisor, yoga teacher and mum, and also with her, Dan Neely. He's a manager over at the Wellington Emergency Management Office. In this episode, we explore disasters, emergency preparedness, management of said emergencies and everything to do with that, and also very creative things as well, curatorial things, all to do with creativity and where that's from. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation and these two good humans as well. So enjoy. So we start with one of your juicy questions to kick us all off with. Just because he's got juicy questions, he said. Yeah, Great. yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's so so in preparation, right? I was I was kind of reading up a little bit about you online, um, and I read about the super cool project you've done over the years with the Kiwi Diary, and I love the line: "We protect what we value. We value what we feel connected to." I feel like I could pinch that for emergency management, mm. but I'm really curious to hear. How you came up with that, what that means to you, and, and mm. how that kind of relates to some of the work you've done in the past. Yeah, I mean, I um, when I was reading about you, I could see so many connections with um, those sort of themes between what we do, um, because we operate from that place of values. And I think I read it somewhere else, and I just landed on it, because I was always trying to find a way to articulate succinctly what the Kiwi Diary is all about, and I really struggled with it. I don't think I've nailed it yet. Um, but I think over the many decades of my life and just kind of observing things, like I've always said that I'm, you know, I'm a middle child, I'm a daydreamer, and I've spent a lot of time (laughs) in my head, um, observing and seeing patterns. I'm like, that's a bit weird, Frida, but, um, yeah, but people talk about noticing what you consume, like what, um, TV shows you're watching. It's not just what you're eating, but what's your your appetite in terms of conversations and content. And I would often just feel a bit let down by, say, the news or the newspaper. I'd be like, it's just kind of, it leaves you feeling a bit down about the world. Mm. And um, so the Kiwi Diary was sort of um, trying to counter that and expose people to material that even if they're not aware of it, it's, it's kind of wholesome. It's kind of good for people and planet. Mm. And it's going to land somewhere deep in there. And if I can be someone to contribute to exposing them to... Um, reminders of the goodness, of our fundamental goodness, um, that, you know, maybe subconsciously, like not manipulating their subconscious or anything, but, you know, it just builds that connection and that I'm going to value these things. Um, yeah, so the Kiwi Diary's got content that talks about, you know, the state of the oceans or the state of our bird life or, um, yeah, it's kind of a long, waffly answer. How did, how did, that, come, how did that come about? The Kiwi Diary? Yeah. Whoa. Bang, like straight to the <laughs> the juicy one. Well, so I have to credit my amazing friend Annabelle Wilson for the idea. Um, we've been partners in crime going way back to um, uni where our French tutor mistook us for each other because we were the ones that didn't show up to the tutorials, um, but we did pass. <laughs> <I like laughs> get degrees. Oh, sorry, Dad. No, but um, there were... <laughs> 
Um, yeah, she saw something similar in Australia and she was like, we don't have anything like this in oh, New Zealand, yeah. something that celebrates our culture. And I just come out of graphic design school after uni and we just hung all the time and just like she studied English and she made, we made short films together and, um, I was like, yeah, I'll do something with you. Like she's one of those entrepreneurs. Her father was also an entrepreneur. Um, it was him who gave Tally's the idea of ice cream, apparently. Mm. Just, <laughs> um, yeah, and so the Kiwi Diary started back in, I think it was 2004. We did 100 copies. It was very much late nights and weekends. You're like hanging with your best friend, just yabbering about an mm-hmm. idea is great. And then, you know, just feeding off each other. Like I, um, in terms of being a creative person, I really um, find it so helpful to have another brain in the room. Just when you get that, hit the wall and, you know, discuss an idea with someone and, you know, keep it moving forward, um, feed off their energy. And so, yeah, she was really good at, um, you know, getting sponsors and just building relationships and bringing the party vibe to it. So she would do the, you know, the launches and, um, yeah, quite a natural marketer, I think. Mm-hmm. So it kind of started in very much in a kitsch kind of Kiwi culture, like quotes from Billy mm-hmm. T. Mm-hmm. Like, here's how to make um, a lamington or a history of Pavlova or whatever. And then it just evolved over the 18 years of Kiwi Diary. Mm-hmm. I'm so old. <laughs> so how would you describe it now from a, that evolvement? Yeah, right. Because it evolved so, into what then? So I think really I started to more and more put my own values into it. And so in some ways it was evolving in power with my own, um, I don't know, maybe journey of maturing and allowing myself the permission to um, to speak my own beliefs mm. instead of going, oh, you know, what does everyone else think? Like I was very much one of those kind of people. Mm. And so through my... 30s and now my 40s um I have way less of a filter (laughs) (laughs) yeah develop it right yeah Yeah, and so really started to push some stronger messages in the diary um just around you know environmental issues and I would sort of um kind of see a story about someone so it might have been Dr Nikki Hade's social psychology lecture up at Auckland Uni or New Zealander of the Year um I've had Dr Mike Joy people like that um and Salmond the anthropologist and just hit them up um I've got this thing I'm trying to get better ideas out there in society would you be interested in maybe an article or would love to share your ideas with people and I was amazed to find that the people who I was most intimidated by were just like sounds great yes mm. boom and yeah. so it's kind of this flow of just I feel like I'm kind of, you know, picking fruit and just feeding, like distilling um, things that can, you know, of value to society through my subjective so, lens. So where you're at now with it, how would you describe it now from, like, how, mm. are you still doing 100 copies? Um, there's another zero, so it's still kind of small. So I think okay. 1,500 this year, it's sent away to the printers. So it's <laughs> that, that weird downtime of like... Ooh. So it's done now, this, <laughs> the next year's, yeah. this year's... When does it go from and to the yeah, diary? Yeah, well, so it's just an annual diary. Yeah. So it um, comes out in about August, September, and it starts next January, January 1st. Gotcha, yeah. Calendar year. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a testament, though, for 18 years of doing yeah. something because it's a kind of a pro bono venture for mm, guys as well when you first started hustle. it wasn't an intention like a side hustle to make millions and billions yeah, um, but I'm interested to follow up on your question about your specific role now as a curator and mm. you touched on it there about your lens changing and your filter mm. changing your distillation mm. you know you're using all that language but the curatorial 
skills, I think, is, is that the act of curation is an act of creation. Hmm. All right? And people you put down it. curation, yeah, like hmm. whether it be humans, bringing humans together, whether it be literal content to hmm. then put into something to publish. Hmm. Um, what would you say is kind of the, the kind of the attributes that is needed for a skilled curator? <laughs> well, you've been doing it for a while. Well, I mean, there's a sense of, um, I don't know, I want to say pattern recognition, but without realising that you're doing it, you're sort of um, like seeing a pattern and it tells a story. Um, I was reading this thing recently about the use of metaphor to communicate a new idea mm. to people, which I'm sure you have got one to ask you lots about that. Um, but then the comment was that, and I wish I could remember who said it, that actually the human brain is operating on metaphors all the time because we're using current understanding to um, apply it to acquire some new understanding. So sort of, you know, metaphor is something we're already familiar with, mm. but then applying it um, to look at something new mm. in a different way. But yeah, in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of curation, I don't know, like... Um, when I studied graphic design, I sort of, I remember applying for a job fresh out of design school and I think I got into the last three. So I was like, okay, I'm okay with that. I didn't get it. But the interviewer's comment was, have you thought about being a curator? Just the way that I'd oh. set up my mm. um, CV. Uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah. So it's sort of like how you can use um, this, the way you sequence things maybe to tell a story yeah. or, but I don't know, maybe ironically, I see Kiwi Diary as very much bit of everything it's a bit hodgepodge and maybe right. there's a part of me that wants to rebel against how we need to put things in boxes like I remember as a little kid reading obituaries and it's like they were <laughs> that's a bit odd we, that's the yeah, thing by sentence as a kid I love reading a question what the hell I wouldn't like flip straight to the back of the right paper. okay it's more like you just came there. across it okay dad leaves the paper out you flick through because you're learning about the world like oh, journalists so much responsibility but you know you get to the end and it's like you know big long male name, you know, Arthur, Ralph, da-da-da, and, and it gave his job title. He was a historian mm. or he was a geographer or he was a scientist. And then when you read the content, it was like, oh, and he had these hobbies. And it was like, actually he played saxophone and wrote poetry and, mm. like, grew mushrooms or something. And I just remember in my little brain, it's like, oh, but, but once you're that thing, you're that thing. And it was sort of, um, so how as humans we want to kind of give something a label and pigeonhole it and understand it because mm-hmm. we're, we crave certainty and we're not okay with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And so we immediately, we so very quickly like label people and make that judgment and fit it into what we already know. I don't know. And so, um, yeah, I just remember thinking, you know, you go through your life and like, what are you going to study at uni? What are you going to be mm-hmm. when you grow up? And I got to uni and I'm like, I have no idea. Yeah. I studied everything. And flipping that from being um, something to be ashamed of to something to maybe celebrate about yourself. Society doesn't give you that. Like, no problem. Take your time. Try everything. <laughs> I don't know. Or I didn't get those. Mm. And so I think with the Kiwi Diary, I sort of enjoy having everything. I'm like, there's poetry, yeah. there's um, a scientific article, there's a recipe. Because for me, I see a thread running through it. Mm. I see that it's humans discovering what we're about collectively, um, what they're about, and they're taking inspiration from their environment and channeling it through their own creativity, which comes in many forms. So mm. that's lovely. Oh, I don't know. Mm. I that is lovely. Where, where, where do you 
talked about that kind of pattern recognition. Uh, that was kind of one of the things I've, because you're both quite creative people. We all are. I, I, I agree with that, actually. <laughs> I, think, I think everybody has, is, is creative if they allow themselves to be, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good um, word. You guys have made a career in, in creativity. Um, oh, right, yeah. more, than, more than maybe um, other people. Where, where, where do you think that, you know, it's an age-old question, right? Where does creativity come from? Where does, mm -hmm. but where, I mean, you just talked about that kind of pattern recognition, and I've, I've read that in the past. That's a, that's a common thing. I'm just kind of curious where you think, yeah, where, where does creativity come from? So how you define and why, it? Why, course, and where right? do you, what yeah. magnetizes you to that? Field as well, I think that's yeah. another element to that. This point. Well, there's mm. the Sir Ken Robinson approach to creativity, which is have an original thought that adds value, right? And that's his definition. I'm paraphrasing, but generally, original thought or action that adds value, right? Mm. And that kind of is a great summary for creativity because it's such a slippery fish. Creativity, <laughs> like it's like really mm. like, and and depending on who you ask, it could be many mm. different things. But yeah, the originality. But what I like mm. about that, it gives space for someone like you, a curatorial, uh, like adding things together that doesn't belong, like a, a recipe with a science mm. kind of thing. You know, you know what I mean? You're creating lots of, like you said, hodgepodge, you use that. Mm. But putting things that wouldn't originally be sat together on a shelf, mm. and you're doing that in your diary, that's creativity that juxtaposition yeah but having a thread and having a theme or a narrative form running through mm. it and those are the best curators on the planet those that distill a lot of information down to a narrative form that helps you and i normal mortals feel like there's a narrative thread through it mm. or there's a connection between things right but uh but yeah that's kind of how i see creative and creative acts it, it's not just oh, i drew this or i created mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. it's it's also in the act of i pulled this together mm. i added that i put these people together i created space so others can do that mm. it can be very much in the shadows as a an yes. act of creativity space doesn't have to be on the stage as mm -hmm, a creativity mm -hmm. i think yeah. we miss that a lot especially if you think about uh, any public sector endeavors of supporting creative Creativity, it's like they, they, they focus on the end outcome stuff. Mm. And that's fine, don't get me wrong, because people need that, or the obvious stuff, but there's a lot of shadow work going on yeah. uh, that we miss. And you just think about so like the, the obvious people who need to be part of a stage experience. It's the runners, it's the lighters, it's the crew that you never see. But without them, you wouldn't have mm -hmm. that creative expression on the stage. Mm. So they're part of the creative act Mm. You know, it's a bigger um, ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, I'm really, I'm really always looking for the shadow people in that mm. regard. Nice. Like people you wouldn't be obviously yeah. creative. Yeah, yeah. That's my take on it. Yeah, what and one other thing to add to that, I think um, there's something about um, with curation about surprising people. Like, mm. I think. Um, I don't know, and sometimes it's gotten me into trouble because I've seen the world differently for too long. Like, I just can't not see it, you know, but, but wanting to make people see things in a different way, to mm. jar them out of automatic thinking because the brain, um, like I did a psychology degree with a little bit of neuropsych, and I found it fascinating because the way we assimilate information is we're just grouping it like with like, mm -hmm. and so you form your heuristics, your mental shortcuts, mm. and they become biases. Totally. And yeah, I want to ask you more about your work and all of that. Um, yeah. yeah, biases and stuff, everything going on. Yeah. Change of behavior, social well, behavior. And behavior. Yeah. Q, Q, Dan, I mean, how did you get into the work that you're in? What? 
Um, I, 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 like, like most careers, I stumbled into it. So I wanted a job uh, in community development years ago when I graduated from university. I, graduated, I studied as a teacher, um, decided I wanted to work in community development, became a Peace Corps volunteer. I don't know if you've ever heard of Peace Corps. So I was a Peace Corps volunteer in, in uh, Honduras in Central America mm. and uh, landed right after Hurricane Mitch had rolled through. You guys probably don't remember that in the late 90s, but it was the third most powerful hurricane ever recorded. It took the lives of about 20,000 people. Um, well, yeah, you know, just it caused havoc right around. So um, that was my introduction to emergency management, disaster Sorry, recovery. Yeah, yeah, just thrown in. Um, spent two years involved, you know, living living in a in a little village, doing d- related disaster recovery stuff. Um, it was an amazing experience. Learned a lot. Like most Peace Corps volunteer experiences, you the volunteers walk away with a lot more than you give, you right? Change. Okay, hundred percent, hundred percent. Oh, um, like right, yeah. Like you, you're, you save. You re- you learn yeah. a lot more than you're able able to. To, okay. to give back, hmm. uh, and that, but that, that I think that experience, I still wanted to get into community development. Just kept stumbling into disaster work around the world, so I ended up in the Boxing Day tsunami in Sri Lanka. Emigrated here, tried to. I was working in uh, community housing for a little bit, and then stumbled back into emergency management. But there was a little shift at the time before the Christchurch earthquake, where there was like this kind of um, maybe we should be doing more in the community stuff because emergency managers is top down by yeah. by the way it's structured, you know, okay. and, and we. As a sector, um, this is like my long critique of our sector: is we we look at things for the things we quote unquote command and control, which is like like this small. You know, we mm. have a bit of a tunnel vision, um, and we don't see the capacity and the capability of what community brings. Mm-hmm. Okay, empowering to, to disaster response and recovery. Right, mm. we have a tendency just to look at like you know even the words we use, command and control, which is uh, a bit of a fallacy in and of itself because you know, right. what do we really control? Bit like oh, white right, knight yeah. syndrome, right? You just strode in to save the day, type thing. Yeah, yeah. Right, and, the hero. and and, and yeah. you know, there's, a, I mean, so many people involved in emergency management are amazing, and they're really passionate about the work. Mm-hmm. But the system, talk about the heuristics, right? Like, the 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 when when we train for when your whole career is built on a command control mindset, you don't go in thinking like, oh, I'm just going to empower other people that aren't out, outside of my span of control to do amazing stuff. It's just mm-hmm. not how the thinking translates into that work. And so what my team does is, uh, I'm the manager of community resilience at the Wellington Region Emergency Management Office, otherwise known as Remo, really long name. <laughs> and my team works with communities to help them better kind of reduce their risk to natural hazards, prepare for natural hazards, mm. the stuff that goes bump in the night like earthquakes and tsunamis and, and severe weather events. And, and yeah, we help people try to position themselves to be in a better future in response and recovery. And is that a change? And that's a bottom-up, and that's a very, yeah, yeah, mm. so... Um, when you first started in the Honduras, to now, looking at your sector, as a transition to more of the community focus? We're getting there. Right. Um, mm. I think um, the parallels were was international aid, where you get a lot of um, foreign NGOs and foreign governments coming in, parachuting in, really short-term objectives, yeah, you know, yeah. hand out food focus and, on yeah. outputs that they can go like, yay, us, and then they bail, right? Mm-hmm. And I, got, I think one of the good things about being a Peace Corps volunteer is I got to see that whole transition of people mm-hmm. coming in, like patting themselves on the back and then bailing, and, and the community's actually not yeah. sometimes being worse off. On the big salaries. Off. Right, totally, yeah. totally. Um, well, and so uh, I think it's been great to be able to take those hard lessons learned and bring them into a more of the long-term development game that my team is able to work with our community. So we're really, we try to 
um, in many respects, kind of it's a model in Peace Corps where we really embed ourselves into our communities, mm-hmm. um, spend time getting to know different people, different organizations, and really help them look at the many different ways um, they can really prepare for, mm-hmm. for events that are going to keep happening and, and happen in a big way someday, right? So Yeah, and it must be more rewarding. Like what you're saying is just, um, it sparks so many thoughts in me because um, A, as a parent, which, you know, we both are, so it's re- more rewarding to sort of, to, um, you know, to teach the men to fish or like see your kids acquire those skills. Um, I was reading this thing recently that talked about if you view language as information transfer as one way, well, okay, that's one way of seeing it, but if you view language and communication as building meaning with someone, building shared meaning with someone, that's a very different paradigm, and it's, I think it's a lot more empowering. And when you're sitting here talking about empowering communities, two thoughts came to mind. One is I remember being in like a reasonably big you know, earthquake in Wellington seven, eight years ago. Akura, yeah. Yeah, and um, I just remember, because um, I grew up in Nelson, where when you're growing up, you're walking around, everyone said hi to each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then, like, little girl goes into big city, big city, Wellington. And, like, no one looks at you. I'm like, come on, man. And then after the um, earthquake, I noticed everyone was making eye contact. Yeah. Mm. And I was like, yeah, psychology, this is a social thing. We need each other. And we're living in the society that's built up and it's constructed, that there's entertainment and there's consumption. And it's quite individual. And we lose that connection. Mm-hmm. But um, you must see this a lot in your work. And I feel like as we learn that skill of realizing how much we can rely on each other, um, it's going to serve us well as we face these bigger crises Absolutely. that we're facing with the environment. Absolutely. Yeah. People, so, people, are, people are, I think it's a, one of the common false narratives, again, that you see in the disaster kind of spaces, like um, after a big disaster, you know, you got to make, make sure the police are there because it's going to be right. rampant and yeah, there's going to no be you know, looting, et cetera. Yeah. No evidence base to support that, right? It, bring, mm. it generally on the balance brings out the best of people. Yeah. You know, people, gotcha. because if you think about it, like we evolved as a species to work collectively, yeah. mm, right, in times of stress. Mm. And, and uh, I think if you look at, again, the history of human beings, like we've been dealing with emergency manage- management issues for millennia. Sixth and there's right, not a, there's yeah. not, it's not like a skill set that you need. We're all... You know, from the metaphor point of view, we're all emergency managers every day. We all deal with mm. small emergencies, uh. yeah. <laughs> and we figure it out. And um, I think that our sector, in many respects, has done a disservice over the years to kind of framing, like, you need special, special training, special, huh. right? Like, you don't. On the balance, you don't. Uh, right. mm. So it's actually reconnecting people in with. And it's funny, because as a yoga teacher, I'm always saying, like, reconnect in with your inner wisdom. You know the truth yeah. is already in here. It's funny that you... Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, and so we've, we've been building our system for the last 10 years trying to unwind that and frame um, what emergency response and recovery is instead of just the top-down piece, which you need, you know, and, and it's an important part, but actually the community capacity, community capability is much bigger than mm. the official emergency management system, and people are actually pretty capable problem solvers in times of stress, and we need mm. to find ways to empower that and we, you know, through our Community Emergency Hub program, that's, that's one of the ways that we're trying to position the region when we have some big events in the future, and we're going to, mm-hmm. that people can better look after each other and, and get you know, much better outcomes well, even across the system. The language like emergency management, 
like managing an emergency is kind of an oxymoron. Mm. You kind of just, <laughs> you know, yeah. when is it coming around? You, you manage freak out. Can, can't yeah. manage something that just huh. is an emergency. Yeah. You, know, you just got to react. Being with what happens. But you can prepare, in, right? That you can preparedness. Be, mm-hmm. And I like some of the language uh, or response. Yeah, that's a bit more honest. You're not responding to an emergency yep. because you're not managing it. You're responding to it. Right. Mm. But there's still uh, an idea around triage, I suppose, depending on the level of, course. of disaster. Mm. Um, and is that also kind of it within your remit about, well, how do you figure out from a community perspective this idea of, yeah, if we have a big earthquake, depending on where and w- what it is in terms of scale, it might either trap us in Wellington because it might you know, collapse the, the motorway and then there's going to be some triaging around that. might, you know, balk all our kind of water, mm-hmm. you know, because of underground and stuff and there's going to be a lot of triaging like that. Like how, how much planning and kind of models of disaster do you run? In terms of scenario planning. Yeah. Um, yes to all that, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which can make you blue, I can imagine, because you're like going, well, what if that? Oh, my God, that means yeah. that. Yeah, and so what about this line? It, it, there's, you know, some of the, a lot of that is, is conse- looking at just general consequences. Um, so you definitely look at some scenarios. Um, mm. And that's where the top-down piece is important, because ultimately in a large-scale event like that, you're going to have more demands than you have resources, mm. right? Right. So, so that's yeah. where that's where we do come and step into play, um, working with everybody, understanding what the capabilities are right across the region, and 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 I think that you know all that is super important, and our our team does some really great work there. I guess the piece that we're always trying to come back to is what is the role of community in that as well, yeah. right? And so. Um, not everybody's needs are going to be met by the system, but in many respects, people's needs can be met when. We see people coming out on the streets. You know, you see this time and again, and there's a lot of stories out of Christchurch. I lived next to these people for 20 years, didn't know their name. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Come out, we're meeting on the street, and now yeah. we're like best friends. And we lived next to each other for 20 years. We literally didn't know each other. People meet each other. And then there's just this, like, how do we support each other? Right? And, and it's the ir- irony, sorry, uh, the irony that sometimes these horrible things happen. And people are nearly glad because actually they form these amazing relationships out yeah. of them. Um, I actually worked at NZAID for a few years straight out of uni. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of um, you know, heard some stories from people about um, their work in the aid um, world. But yeah, it's that kind of irony that it's not like you'd want to invite these big emergencies or disasters to happen, but they bring us back to being humans and actually right. making connection. And that's kind of what makes life rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. And like stripping away all the like entertainment and the... The, what am I wearing today, and you know all of those things, and just I don't know. And that's why I love yeah. that line, right? We protect what we value. We value um, what we feel connected to. That just ties <laughs> right you in. Use it at your work. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that. I was like, oh, that's great, man. I love that. That could be a tagline for emergency management. Yeah, you know, and yeah, and yeah. We, we used to run these. Um, hmm. We still do, but when we were doing a lot of our early community response planning, we'd go into a suburb. Um, my team would spend a whole bunch of time in that community, kind of just meeting some people, and basically. We'd run this series of we'd run a couple of workshops on on how the community can draw on the assets that are already there, right? Because people mm. often go like, "Oh, you know, big event. What are you going to do for me?" And it's actually like, "What do you already have? Asset-based uh, community development. What's already uh, in your community to solve the problem, right? Social assets, physical assets." Um, but the very first question we'd yeah. ask, and this is kind of why I like this, is it really relates to what we were doing, huh. which we'd ask people like, "What do you love about your community?" 
And, and we, nice. we'd inevitably get people standing up and like, oh, I didn't come here. I want to do response planning. <laughs> you know, I'm not yeah. here to talk about why yeah. I love it. the medic and I want to practice suit. Yeah, yeah. They wanted to get, you know, they wanted to get all, get their, get their Rambo on. Yeah. And <laughs> so disappointing. What do you love? Oh, man, I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> and they would, but, but inevitably once we just like, you know, bear with us, yeah. go through the exercise. Like, what, just tell us what you love. Nice. And we'd get it up and, uh, You'd see the penny drop. Like oh, yeah. that's why we're doing totally this. It's shifts. not. It's not about response. It's about protecting what we love and feel connected to. And that's why we live in this community, right? And so that was the that would open up with the why, mm. you know, and it really kind of center our, the conversations around then how do we work together in times of stress? Mm. But you know, just that I, I really think that's a, that's a great tagline for emergency management. I'm take it. <laughs> it wasn't not. mine. But I also love what you said there about when you like asking a good question, which I'm trying to learn about right now. Um, for my job, but um, you can direct people's focus to, you know, and my mum used to say, like, everything comes from either fear or from love. Mm. And if, you know, emergency management, man, it's so easy to imagine where all the fear is and that, right? But if you shift and, like, channel people, okay, so what do you value? What do you love? What's already good here? It literally puts your nervous system in a different state from parasympathetic, you know, not stress response and just I'm safe and... And like what I tell my yoga students, when you get them into, you know, Shavasana, corpus pose at the end, your parasympathetic nervous state, that's actually your natural state, apparently. Like mm. when I read that, I was like, wow, we're all stressed all the time. We're not mm. even in our natural state all the time, <laughs> which is just oh, feel the love, we're happy, we're safe. So yeah, I think that's, um, yeah, that's a really cool story that you can, because um, I sort of feel like when you talk about community-based asset management, no one really thinks of what's already here. It's like, I've got to hoard it all up myself. You know, you hear these stories in America, like they dig out under the house and they fill it up with a thousand liters of water just in case in the flag. Uh, yeah. But um, in my day job with the Wellington Leader Leadership, Wellington Regional Leadership Framework, both got big acronyms. <laughs> um, there's a little bit of a narrative going on of observing in terms of the 10 um, territorial authorities, the 10 councils around the region that individual focus and then bringing in this new joint committee to draw people into more of a um, collective responsibility um, to face these challenges that are bigger than any one council can face alone, so mm -hmm. growth-related things. Um, and, yeah, and so it's kind of this inter interesting psychological journey of what's going on for the individual, like what's in it for me, you know, what's, um, like what can the system give to me, what are you going to do for me versus we're all responsible for this. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like massaging people into think more collectively and maybe even taking one for the team. So that, mm. so I feel like there's a lot of that in your work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and all that is is just good community development principles. Right. You know, I mean, it's for, for at least from our work, like, but that's where I think our sector, um, when I, can, I look critically at it, it's gone in in the past with like, you know, big earthquake, I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> right. You over there now. <laughs> got to do yeah. stuff, got to do stuff. Um, action, action. Whereas if it's more framed around, um, you know, we all encounter disruptions and mm. we, you know, the reason Wellington is so beautiful is because it's created by earthquakes. Yep. Right? Mm. I mean, that's why this place is so beautiful. Yep. Um, and so, you know, we have thanks was, to mm. give to the beauty, to, to, the to, those, to those big shifts of tectonic plates and... Yeah. Um, part of their living here is accepting that risk and mm. um, consequently understanding, understanding how we can live with that risk and then consequently what skills and assets do we have around us that are wider than just what government mm. can provide. 
So uh, what can communities provide? I think this is probably one of the, the best frames for helping move the needle and get people engaged in that. Because it's a scary topic, right? It can be. It's off-putting. Sure. it's off-putting for a lot of people. I can provide a soda stream. Just getting that's really naughty, but you've got a good question. <laughs> well, I had a question around because you mentioned the good principles of community development. Mm. Like, could you detail them? Could you list? I could give you some. Some, yeah. For sure. more sure. recollection. Uh, so people... um, I, think, I think one of the most, just, we were just leading up to this, right? Earlier as we were coming in, like, the principle of having fun. I'm a mm. big believer in having fun, right? Because it, it, lowers, it lowers the anxiety. It makes people more creative, makes more people willing to connect and contribute. Yeah. And I don't think we do enough of that. Agreed. Right? So mm-hmm. we, in, whenever we, in the, you know, we always try to, whenever we do community events, always try to have food and make it more of a party than it is yeah. a workshop um, for our community response planning stuff. Uh, I think going in with the idea that Everybody has something to give across society, whether it be from the head, the heart, the hands, right? Like that's, everybody has something to contribute. Hmm. And no matter what, no matter what part of society. Um, and the idea of listening first is such a critical thing. We often go in with our own agenda, and we do as well, right? Everybody's got mm. their own agenda. Of course, yeah. Um, but if you go in and listen, then you can find those win-wins. And I mean, we could, yeah, we could elaborate on that mm. kind of stuff all day, but um, I think those are... And, and, and I guess another one is, is if you're going to do community development, you've got to find a way to get outcomes for people. I think we, we often, um, I don't think we often, but it's easy to lose sight of focusing on the engagement and not the generation of okay. the output or the outcome that matters mm-hmm. or you know, more over the community impact that you're trying to get. So um, if we just do too much listening, uh, then, then we annoy the hell out of people. Right? Yeah, yeah they're like, they, oh, what are you going to do about this? What, yeah. yeah. They need some guidance. And yeah, so you got to deliver. But Remo covers, is it the city or the, the wider? Whole region. The whole region. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So those 10 principal areas that you mentioned. Mm. So. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's, uh, I think those are just some basic community development principles, right? No, Building it's just for is, other people listening, yes, going, yeah. well, you mentioned that, where are they? Uh, but I've got a question around going back to your triage tree and all the mad things, but also what types of emergencies, cl- are clusters, what types of disasters are clusters emergencies? I don't know how to phrase that. Yeah, yeah. Like, what is an emergency? What's a disaster? Are they the same? Mm-hmm. Like, and what levels do they kind of that. then set, tip over into a disaster yeah. versus, no, that's just a really bad thing that happened. Yeah. And it's not a disaster yet. Like, how. And there's even one before that, which uh, oh. we like to joke about, which is. Uh, inconvenience management, <laughs> <Okay>. right? <laughs> Where people kind of think it's emergency it's management. Like every like, day. <laughs> no, you're just inconvenienced, <laughs> which is not an emergency. Okay. Um, so what are the classifications then? Can you uh, walk us through? I mean, it's, it's not a hard, and it's, it's funny because we talk about this at work. Like um, sometimes what, what's the best words to use and land with people? Mm-hmm. Um, disaster has a much bigger feel to it. Yes. Um, and so I don't, you know, I'm sure there's actually some, definitions. Mm-hmm. Emergencies happen every day, right? I mean, as I was walking down here, there was some ambulance and, and fire trucks going to something like that's an emergency event for that people or group of people. Um, the system yeah, is able to it. meet those demands, mm. right? We only get involved when it suddenly scales where there's more demands than there are assets. All right. Right. right? Mm-hmm. That's, and that's largely, um, and you know, that's generally where, or, or the, there's a likelihood where the demands are going to exceed and who assets. makes the call? 
Is there one person or a group of there's, people that have to kind of have a, no, there's three out of five has to get to yes. Yeah, and it, well, it depends on the event, right? So civil defense emergency management, we look after the natural hazard stuff, so the earthquake, storms, tsunami. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's like a terrorism event, then police are the lead agency. Yeah, of course. Right? Um, for COVID, health was the lead agency. Mm. And so there's a team in there that's assessing what's happening, and they're saying, actually, we need to stand up the system in a more deliberate way to address yeah. the requirements of what we're looking down. Mm. And then the access of. and activate the assets that you talked about that's that right. then come in because there's a need for them. That's now. right. That's right. And then, and then you know, for the bigger, I think in the disaster, somewhere between the, the bigger emergency disaster space, that's where you see communities generally step up. And mm. if, if it's a big event, like communities, communities are always the first responders. They're mm. always the first They're on scene. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, the, I mean, as soon as people are being impacted, they will shift yeah. their thinking to like, oh, I need to deal with this, right? The, mm. the flat tire was an emergency 20 minutes ago, but now floodwaters coming through my house trumps a flat, a flat tire, right? Yeah. And then once they sort themselves out, they sort other people out, yeah. don't they? Because and we, they and we yeah. see that time and again, like you, yeah. there's a, for bigger events, there suddenly becomes a, a, an inefficient market of people wanting to help versus people needing help and they're wandering around right. and that's, and that's, mm. that's kind of the basis of our community emergency hub program. So, gotcha. you know, in every suburb, if you're not familiar with that, in every suburb we have a pre-identified location, usually at schools, um, that is a place for communities to basically coordinate their own response. And mm-hmm. those facility owners have kind of opened up their building and say, yeah, you know, we're here for our communities every day and you can bet we're going to be here in times of stress as well. And mm. so it's a, more, it's, a fa- it's a place for people to kind of come together and, and basically start coordinating their response. Mm. And we then have a kind of a line of sight to those locations yeah. to go, what do you need? As opposed to rolling out a plan on top of that community, mm. which is kind of traditional thinking, um, we're, we now can go in and say, you know, what do you, what do you need? It's so a ground what, up and sit a top down. Mm. Well, and it's, well, it's a combination. It's a combination, but, yeah. but it gives us that, it gives us a way to be able to go into that community and say, what's happening? Mm. What's the intel? How do we support you? We, Southland, do you guys remember the Southland flood of 2020 by chance? Big, big old flood. Mm. Um, they took that model and rolled out across Southland. They had 26 community emergency hubs activate by over a thousand people that had no emergency management experience. Huh. Awesome. And it was super awesome. It was amazing. I was down there for that to support it. And it was just amazing to watch out of the EOC, the Emergency Operations Center. And they just pick up the phone and be like, what do you guys need? Mm. You need X? Cool, man. We'll, we'll try and get some X down to you. That's a beautiful thing. Right? And it wow. just, you know, so what that does is it, um, it allows the system to focus on those more in need in the margins with specific assistance. Mm. And the bell curve can more appropriately mm. look after themselves, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's, 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 it's quite it's clever. Pretty, it's pretty cool. And I think um, I love how, you know, we're formed, we're shaped by our life experiences, right? So for those people who are suddenly, not suddenly, I don't know, the one picking up the phone, hey, how can I help? That's going to change them. They're sort of going to see their role. You know, they're going to feel more connected. So they're going to value people, right? Mm. And um, that's a really beautiful thing. Um, and it gives people a sense of agency. Yes. Right? And I think word. that's one of the things that yeah. we... Use, I can make a difference. I can make a difference, right? Mm-hmm. So people, people want to put some control over this thing that's happening to them. Mm, and so they want to be able to lean in to give themselves some agency as well. And, yeah. and so by enabling people to look after each other, um, yeah, I think we're, we're, we're setting the scene for longer-term positive psychosocial outcomes. Mm. Yeah from a disaster as well. 
And I'm curious if, because you've experienced big disaster situations overseas, so in a very different civilized, uh, civilization, culture, societies, um, do you see differences in the way Kiwis respond? Because I feel like we're, for me, I'm in this bubble of like, nothing bad ever happens here, you know, we've never had a big war, or um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think um, in some developed, and I think a lot of developing countries where they're dealing with uh, life challenges every day. Mm. They they're often better problem solvers, Resilient, right? And right. so you know, even people mm. in New Zealand, right? There's a lot of people in New Zealand living on the margins, and they're dealing with emergencies every single day. I would I would say, in many respects, they're better. They're some of the best emergency managers out there mm-hmm. um, mm. because they're they're dealing with emergencies every day, and, yeah. they're, and they're amazing at improvisation, and they're amazing at Finding resources and mm. you know navigating life in ways that I think in you know in a maybe a more middle income society we're not confronted with as many of those challenges mm. because we have a maybe a higher threshold higher level of security blanket around us. That said, Completely. I've I've seen time and again in New Zealand where people you know pivot and go cool man this is what I got to do and there's yeah. just so many stories out of the Christchurch earthquake, yeah. Edgecombe floods, yeah, um, you know people people yeah, yeah uh, you know I don't know what's it you know. They're capable problem solvers. Yeah. yeah. And, that's, and that's all emergency management is. It's just a, a, you know, abstract challenges thrown at you. Mm. And you got to do improvisational mm. comedy to work your way through it, right? <laughs> Fascinating. I wonder if there's something in that. The best comedians are probably the best emergency managers. You yeah, remember? right. Improv. I wonder if so you could ever do it. We actually brought an improv comedy oh, troupe right. to do training with us. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Think and it was, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. Yeah. Because that's... So much of emergency management, we have those plans, we have mm. training, but those are foundations to jump off of. Yeah. Right? There's a point where there is no rule nah. book care. <laughs> nah. And so, so being able to think more improvisationally, I think, is, is something that our sector should train to do more often. Mm. Yes. And it's like, and. yeah. And, and necessity is the mother of invention, right? So I remember, yeah. was it Guns, Germs, and Steel? And Jared Diamond talks about um, times in our distant past where life was really hard and those cultures that had adversity to deal with actually started to sharpen the saw in terms of their skills and mm. survival and things Absolutely. they invented. So I suppose if life's too easy. So you need <laughs> yeah. a little bit of grit is what you're saying yeah. to, you know, sharpen us all up. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and I taught a yoga class on this the other day, it's taking your adversity and there's those moments where the stories come in, like, why me, you know, why now? You know, that self-pity and you have your pity party, but then choosing to transmute it to kind of shift your focus to, okay, well, what are my values? What do I believe in? What's my truth? And using it to anchor you in those and ground you. Like when we're in a society where there's maybe not a sense of an inner compass, mm. you know, it's like, where is my meaning? Um, so in terms of your hmm. yoga hmm. practice and teaching, YMCA, okay. Uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> that was yoga, right? Um, tell us a little bit about how long you've been doing that, and what does it give you? Oh, I just walked into it. Um, well, yeah. So first time I tried yoga, I was an exchange student in Belgium, okay. in a little church, four hundred year old church. Um, the Rotarian, um, his wife taught yoga. He's like, "Do you want to try my wife's yoga class?" I'd never done it. She did it all in French. Me and my exchange student friend, um, we're at the back of the church giggling, being really annoying. We didn't really understand her, but, but there was something about being 
given permission and guided into just being in your body and moving that felt really good. And then when I went to university, you know, there was the um, yoga there and um, I always found it really grounding and really calming as someone with, you know, quite a busy active mind. Um, maybe overthinking a little bit. Um, yeah, and so it's something that I've really been doing for over 20 years. And wow. I think I had these funny moments in my yoga teacher training where I remembered as a little girl, sometimes I'd get up out of bed and just do a shoulder stand and a cartwheel. And it was like, oh, that was actually a yoga position with a name. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's a 5,000-year-old ancient tradition invented in, I don't know, somewhere in India, really invented to... Um, keep the body healthy and young and the mind as well and you know there's all these ideas about oh yoga it's all woo woo and it's about transcendence and enlightenment and it's like no um it's actually about bringing you back into that that purity of um connecting with your heart you know feelings are made to be felt so we tend to when we have these hard times in life shut it down Mm. and we might build up protection mechanisms um if we've had you know a painful experience, which we're all going to have, you know, that's life. Um, and so there's a lot of different forms of yoga. There's trauma-informed yoga now where um, it's sort of like how to process these, you know, negative feelings we're having. Um, I don't know, I could go on about it for hours, but it's really designed to connect people in with the body. So yoga means to yoke mind and body. Mm. And I often tell my students, you know, <clears throat> we live in a world, you know, we go to university, we're pushed through and we're like use your brain, use your mind, your mind has got all the answers. And we can really get caught in a loop in there mm. and start to torture ourselves, especially if the loop we're telling ourselves, if the story which may come from early role models or early experiences is not a very kind one. You're this, you're that, you're mm. naughty, you're, you know, whatever. We might really internalize that. And um, so part of yoga is creating a space you can sit back and observe your inner dialogue um, and then start to author it intentionally. And really it's quite a liberating moment when you see a yoga student sort of realize I'm the author of my reality. I'm the mm. hero of my story. I'll write my story. If that line makes me feel crappy, if it's releasing neurochemicals into my body, which make me feel crappy, you know, like rewire that and start to release the happy ones. So there's a bit oh, of brain powerful. chemistry. I think I just rambled a lot. No, that's good. That's... I want, so when you say you want more fun in the world, I, I'm always like, I want more yoga studios. I want an adult playground in Lampton Key. I want a flying fox. Like, bring the joy back. <laughs> totally, man. Totally. That's that. fascinating because, like, <laughs> yoga, yeah, I've always saw yoga as just Lime's stretching and, and, you know, yeah, a health thing. <laughs> yeah. But not a mind health or a mm. heart health mm. kind of movement. Um, but there's, I also understand there's lots of different practices of your or different discipline or what so do you many. call them? Like ways of yoga. Yeah. I mean, 5,000 years, right? People are going to branch off. There's going to be Mr. Uh, right. Bikram. There's going to be, you know. Yeah, like hot yoga people. where they do it oh, and yeah. sweat like crazy. Yeah, all the different kinds. Right. But do you have a specific style? <laughs> um, not really. I think what I do is vinyasa flow and a bit of hatha, um, which is sort of... And the funny thing is, actually, my yoga teacher, um, Nico Luce, I did my training with him, amazing guy, Um he had a story of he did a he does yoga teacher training all around Europe and he had some students come out from Eastern Europe and where a lot of the books had just been confiscated and they couldn't do a whole lot of stuff back in oh, that okay. time. Um, I'm gonna miss some key details. But so those students had found a book and they taught themselves just the energetics part of yoga. So they were able to just sit, not move at all, and shift their energy, you know, talking about the chakras, the energy locks, the the flow of energy. Um 
And so when they then started to learn the movement yoga with him, apparently they were just in states of completely out of this world, insane bliss, because they were already so amazing <laughs> at the energetics. <laughs> I don't know. So, wow. so there are many different mm. levels to it. Um, yeah, but, you know, and people injure themselves if they don't do it right as well. You know, I think there were movements where it's like, yoga means I'm going to just like do the splits for 10 minutes. And, and yeah, that's like not good. So... I don't know, there's sort of like, I was even talking to my um, physio, I had like a horrible longboarding accident with my five-year-old trying to keep up with him, and, and my physio's like, you're 40, you know, it's gonna, stuff's going to start to give out. But, um, you know, I often think about, we've got all these disciplines, you know, going to university and learning stuff. No one's ever got to a point in a discipline where they're like, um, boom, we just made it to the end, we know everything now, <laughs> like never, right? We're always evolving, yeah, yeah. our ideas, and... Um, yeah, and so I think what was good in the 80s about yoga, we've sort of since learned, oh, actually, the range of motion in your shoulder is only, you know, this many degrees, and actually that pose that we've been doing for all these decades is actually kind of bad, you know? So we're always right. assimilating new mm -hmm. information. Well, that's, yeah. that's uh, I think, a, a sign of a good practice that mm. it's in... Open to learning. Yeah, well, it's not in flux, but it's open to be influenced when new mm. data yes. is received into it, and it's corroborated or and I think validated. And a sign of a good practice and sign of a good person. You know, you get to that yeah. point where you're locked into your ideas. Yeah, it's definitely. <sighs> we need to change our minds. Got to keep your mind limber. Yeah. Yeah, it's that strong opinions but loosely held ideas. Nice. You know? Yeah. I know, I, I, what is it? I, I know what I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I know what I, yeah, don't even know what you... Don't even don't know. Oh. But, yeah. But knowing that... Um, I sort of felt like when I went to university, like the more you learn, the more you know you don't know. Yeah. And it's like, in yoga we talk about the beginner's mind. If you can just keep mm. in the back of your mind, I was told that thing, so I haven't experienced it myself. Keep an awareness of that. It's, it's kind of hearsay. I actually mm. read that in a book on Buddhism. It's, um, you know, people are told something like this, you know, their religion will tell them this or something will tell them that. And when they really, um, in psychology we sort of, explore how we form our identity mm. and when you attach your identity really strongly to the set of ideas that can form you know prejudice, prejudice and racism where you know someone's different and you're like well it's wrong because your identity is threatened as opposed to like I'm mm. comfortable with many different forms of the truth mm -hmm. <laughs> allow others theirs you know as long as they're not yeah well that's the big problem at the moment it does seem like the world is just wants to be binary you know, in two camps, you're either red or blue or yeah. right or wrong Us or woke or, or not. And it's like there's a lot mm. of greys out there, mm. you know, and it's okay to still be evolving your thought on it. Or the biggest yeah. thing uh, to learn in the last decade or so is just to go, I don't know enough about that. Yeah, imagine opinion. if it was just safe to say, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's okay not to have Absolutely an opinion on certain issues, which yeah, are yeah. hot topics at the moment. Because mm, that's how fine. we learn together. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But in terms of your, you teach it, but you teach it online or in person, especially with COVID in the last couple of years? Yeah, a little bit of both. I, um, I just have a few um, classes I do regularly each week. So just three classes a week is enough because my job is 30 hours a week. Yeah. Um, and I'm a mum, which can take forever. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was thinking of you this morning walking out of the house. I was telling DK, my six-year-old, had picked up the kaleidoscope and he was looking through it and he was walking around the house and then I just heard this bang and he just walked into <laughs> no, the wall no. and then there's a pause and you're like, how intense is this going to be? And mm. then there's a cry and you're like, 
pulling the hand away from the eye. Oh, is it going to be bad? No marks at all. Whew. I was just thinking of you as like emergency management every day yeah. or inconvenience. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's always on the threshold there until you pull it, pull it off his eye, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But yeah, just um, for me, I find, you know, we talk about this elusive finding work-life balance. Mm. And I sometimes I want to rant about, <sighs> they're the same thing. Can we cut the name work life because work is life life is work like mm. I, I'm always someone who's obsessed with finding a new word for things mm. um when that one doesn't really fit but yeah I sort of feel so lucky that I can do a little bit in my body yeah. to balance out being in my head all day at work and I sometimes see people and I'm like I just want to take you all to do a yoga class can we have the meeting at the beach why not jump in the water for a bit like just being fully human it's yeah. like we come into these offices and um after uni, I went to Whistler and did a little bit of ski instructing for six months and I was blessed with being just in nature, like big skies, big mountains, lungs working all the time and really in my body. And I got back and I got a job um, as um, in illegal publishers, just the contrast from being in the mountains in Whistler to being in Lampton Quay. And I was like, it's kind of great right now. Mm, and I would an literally play mind this. games. Yeah, I would like picture the mountains. I'd like just... Wow. your happy place and I just sort of felt like for some people I'm like is this all there's going to be for that person like wanting mm. to get that joy back in there mm. yeah bit of a tangent yeah. Whistler's a fun place it's odd you've been right? yeah a couple of yeah. times yeah it is odd it's a bit of a yeah. bubble yeah have you ever been <laughs> I haven't been I it's haven't been. a beautiful little town but you like where the hell did this come from yeah yeah, like yeah. Like adrenaline junkies it's I famous guess. there's a lot of that yeah yeah but it's yeah the vistas there Oh, something yeah. special. And actually, on that, speaking of North America mm. and your accent, <laughs> do you kind of do you get back there much, or do you? I do. Miss I do. Of it? I, I try to go back uh, up until COVID. Um, mm. Try to go back every year. So I'm from Arizona, which mm. is uh, uh, easily the most beautiful state in the union. Oh. I will. I will proudly say scorpions. A um, lot of scorpions. A lot of scorpions. But, but yeah, it's. Uh, it's, it's I, I miss. I miss. I miss. <laughs> Uh, I've got my, my parents there still and, and friends and family, but uh, oh. and I miss I miss the desert in a lot of ways. So it's nice yeah. to go back every year. Don't have those here. No, no, not not like our deserts. Uh, but but this is home, and I'm I'm really blessed to live in New Zealand. Yeah. So yeah. Fascinating. Miss the desert, like you know, yeah. like how people are born in situations, and like yeah, I, I miss the valleys. Mm. And I talk a lot about, and I have done about. There's a certain type of green in Wales. Yeah. I miss that type of green. Ah. I don't know what it is. I'm sure I'm what, like romanticizing moss? it, and I've made it up in my brain because I yearn <laughs> and sit like that. So I'm sure we're like salmon wanting to go back to the, <laughs> the place where we were born, right? Yeah, like, trying to get back. There's, there's, yeah, yeah. There's but there's a, there's a there's a nostalgia, right? And mm. there's, there's that straight away you were describing it through a very nostalgic lens and mm. not to take it away from yeah. the perspective of its true nostalgia um, but there's also in Wales there's a lovely word called hereath which just means a longing mm. for something uh, that is not really true uh. it's a, a it's a like a foe not even a foe long that's wrong it's just a longing for something yeah. that is nostalgic I suppose and uh, I feel that a lot recently. And when you were just describing, I felt that from you. It's mm. like there's a longing to get back oh, yeah. there and longing mm. to just be in the desert again, whatever that means for you. Like, mm. and, in terms of, like when you say the desert, do you mean like walking in it or driving around just in, being it? in it? Or just, just walking like, in it. We have, we have, we have the it, most beautiful desert in the world, so we're a little bit biased. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The Sonoran is just like, 
it's like a jungle where, where I'm from. I mean, right. It's, it's just rich with flora and fauna everywhere. Oh, so it's really, it's quite beautiful. And quite mm. endemic species there. Oh, yeah. I would yeah. Imagine. So we know when you see like saguaro cactus, like the big tall cactus, like yeah. that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's where I grew up. And canyons and stuff like that, we, eroded by wind. And, I know, like we have more national parks in Arizona than anywhere else in the country. We have more biospheres in Arizona than anywhere else in the country. I Is can, that where bio, biodome? Bio, yeah, biosphere too. That, that comedy <laughs> that was down in southern Arizona. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Arizona, it's it's a wacky place, but it's a beautiful place. <laughs> we also yeah. have we have also have, we, right we also have the majority of the uh, you know extreme views sitting mm-hmm. yeah. in Arizona. Yeah. Well, Phoenix is a wacky place. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it yeah, is. It's a, it's a good city, but it's it is. It's got some. It's got pros and cons. The, you know the guy. You know the guy that stormed the Capitol with the the horns. He lives down the street from my cousin. No, way. he lives down the street from my cousin. <laughs> <laughs> you're like pro to that. Well, it just it just it sums up Arizona, right? right. Yeah, you know that proud. dude. You just, that dude's from so, my neighborhood. Oh, I love that. That's your. You're starting to give me an idea about, yeah, I think, um, <laughs> isn't it funny how, you know, the media, it's like Mike Moore movies, they give you an idea of like, oh, it's so scary, I'm never going there, it's so dangerous, America, full of guns. And he's like, so I went to the block where, you know, everyone thought it was going to be super dangerous, nothing happened, here I am walking around, we knocked mm. on some doors. Yeah, so it's funny how the media gives you one idea. Yeah. And then you go to a place and, mm. yeah, like when I finally went to America, it was just, man, the warmest, kindest people. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. But, but also, I, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. I just, I sort of didn't want to um, end that conversation about nostalgia and mm. um, yearnings for home because um, we were talking about you value what you feel connected to and you feel so connected to the place you were born. And I sort of think we're kind of in a time where, you know, we're in a generation where we can just travel in well, before COVID. We could travel anywhere whenever we wanted and we just left home and, um, and so the idea of belonging, um, I don't know, it's a really fascinating one to me because where is our place of belonging? Like in New Zealand, we have so many different nationalities and I've had flatmates from all over the world who are like, yeah, New Zealand kind of feels like home. Um, but even from, I used to say like when I fly home to Nelson, it's not very often, it's so close. I swear there's like an olfactory fingerprint. I swear something gets sparked inside me mm, yeah. when I smell whatever it is, the soil in Nelson, the ocean, the special recipe or combination of that hits my nostrils and I know like somewhere deep in my soul, I'm like, I'm okay, I can mm-hmm. go. It's so weird. So I feel like when you go back there where you finally get back to the green mossy valleys of mm. Wales, if your being is just <laughs> like, totally. it. I agree. And a lot of times I lived outside of Wales uh, yeah. and worked in England for a long time. Uh-huh. And when I used to drive back across the Severn Bridge, which is the Severn is an estuary that divides England and Wales. Mm. And there's the bridge, the Severn Bridge that goes across it. And just driving across that and you see Croesio Cymru, which means welcome to Wales in Welsh. <laughs> Right, and you see that sign, and then in distance you always see rain clouds because <laughs> it's valleys, right? So it goes up, and it's always wet, right? So, and again, it's like there we go, and it's a visual representation yeah. of that feeling yeah. olfactory. Mm. There's also the, the I remember reading some books uh, back in the day, and you reminded me of this. So forgive me because I'm sharing it for no other reason. In terms of belonging, mm. there's a there's a there's a trilogy from Mervyn Peak called the Gorman Gas Trilogies. Not very many people know them. Very fantastical stories, right? Uh, but there's, 
the three stories, but it centres around this guy called Titus, who becomes like the Earl of whatever, Gormenghast, and he's born into this hereditary family and stuff like that. But in the last book, he goes away from it. He kind of rebels, right, and goes away. He wants his own story because he's been steeped in history and he's kind of locked in. But his whole own, finding his own story means going back, right, because mm. it's that classic hero's journey. You've got to kind of return back. But what's fascinating in this, in this story is he, he, he tries to make a bid to go back home, in inverted commas, because that's where he belongs. He discovers he belongs home. And there's a whole kind of trail going back, and there's a beautiful passage at the end where he's like, he finally gets to the hill where he can see the other hill that he needs to get over, mm-hmm. that he recognises, right? The first thing he recognises, right, I'm nearly there now. Not the home itself, but the hill that he needs to go over. And then he turns around. Because he goes, right, I know how to get home now. Mm. And that's enough for me. It's got that breadcrumb trail. Yeah, and I, I found that really kind of poignant Powerful. and fascinating from a perspective of, you know, being from not round here mm. and having the idea of, like you just said, belonging, but also the capacity to go home at some mm. point. Mm. Like COVID kind of wrecked that a little bit for a while for us. It's mm. like, shit, am I going to get home? And how am I going to get home? And yeah. I know I'm going back next month for the first time in three years. And wow. it feels like that I'm going back because I feel like I need to just step my feet in this in the soil and yeah, get yeah. like yeah. I need to be here for yeah. some reason to know where I belong yeah. but really mm-hmm. where do, I never felt that before never so Covid has no. done that for me it's jarred me out yeah. of yeah. where I'm from yeah. a little bit yep. you, have you had the same experiences Bob? yeah 100% right yeah absolutely and yeah going and, and as is the old trope right you go back and you're never that same person mm. yeah so yeah. We, we were just back over at Christmas and it was really nice to be back but that's like that's my homeland, but that's not home. Mm. You know, this is this is home. That's my homeland. Mm. I identify. I I am. My loud American accent is. You know, I'm an Ameri- <laughs> I'm from American, and I'm from Arizona, and all that comes mm-hmm. with it. But I'm, it's not home. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that you, you know, yeah. I, I, I'll be interested to hear what it's like for you when you come yeah. back too, right? Oh yeah. Back. What accent will be stronger, even more stronger. Yeah, be very well she had. Be like that. <laughs> What's, what is funny is you, you talk about that olfactory element, and mm. uh, we've got this plant called creosote, and it, it's just this kind of scrubby, super oily plant. And when it rains in the desert, the whole, like, it, it literally like, opens up and comes alive, and the whole desert smells like it. And it's just, it smells like a desert, right? It's, it's, to me, huh. it is, I'd make a cologne out of this stuff if I could. <laughs> million dollar idea. Well, not exactly. So, oh. so <laughs> probably doesn't smell like right great. Yeah. So we made some when we were back in Arizona. <laughs> right. Actually, uh, it, we had a bit of rain, and so we went and picked some, boiled it down into um, a balm, and I made it for gifts to bring back to for my staff. Like uh-huh. this, you know, here's and, and it's nice because it's a little uh, natural antiseptic because it kills. You know, right. So and I think it's the most beautiful smell. Like, it is the most beautiful smell in the world. And I Tear. gave it to people. And people were like, oh, thanks. <laughs> just, you know, it's really polite. Everybody's really polite. But you just see, like, yes. oh, thank you. Is it you. like manuka honey sometimes? It's quite a strong... I mean, it's not like that, I, but it's... I don't know how to describe it. it. Like, it's, I, it's just the most beautiful smell in the world. Wow. Aww. Except nobody seemed to like it <laughs> beauty's in the eye or the nose of the that's it that's it so there we go you know just yeah. it just it come back to <sighs> like what grounds you that yeah. belonging clearly mm. no it doesn't resonate yeah 
creosote doesn't resonate with anybody in New Zealand. Yeah, yet. Yeah. Yeah. There's this sadness in your face when you say that. You get me. But it's funny because I have to say, like, you know, um, I feel bad, you know, I interrupt more the more people speak more interestingly because it sparks so many ideas. I'm like, just sip it, wait, uh-huh. wait your turn. But when you're talking about um, that homecoming and going over and seeing that mountain, so there's a very similar analogy in yoga because um, it talks about bringing people home into themselves, into their hearts. Because we talk about well, what we do in life, what actions do we take? You know, we um, what is a good life? And the yoga texts cover all of this. And then I see it in a modern psychology book and I'm like, it's cool, man. It's like 5,000 years yeah. old. Yeah. They're all like saying the same stuff and it's coming from different places of the world, you right. know, different times. But, um, but it's kind of like those universal truths that we're, and Brene Brown talks about this, that we're, um, that humans are all fundamentally good and that we all fundamentally want to do good and that we're all kind of seeking um, a sense of lightness and fun and we might get trapped in our 20s seeking it in bad habits and devices and addictions you know and then we might realize that we're destroying ourselves in our 30s like you know like telling a friend story or <laughs> maybe you know turn a corner and um like you know do a bit of our healing journey um but a lot of yoga is just like it's not you know, acquiring all this information and really complex kind of cleverness is required. It's more like it's a peeling back the layers and just coming home into yourself. And because when you're, it's in your body that you've got to go out and do all that stuff. So if you feel, it's like that great line I was thinking of, um, I heard a great podcast recently and she was talking about um, her definition of success was how much you understand yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, like the unexamined life isn't worth living. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, when you kind of get to that space in your life where there's space for contemplation. Um, and I think you talk about it a little bit um, of um, your experiences and your aid work really shaped you and you noticed how you relate to the world and, and what you observed about it. Um, not really making a whole lot of sense here, but it's, yeah, it's like William James talks about there are six people in every conversation when there's two. I'm not going to do the math. Right. <laughs> there's sort of like, who we are, mm-hmm. who we think we are, and who the other person thinks we are. Mm. And, you know, there's just all those different perspectives. So there's nine here. Whoa. Yeah. That's fascinating. Three accents. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But talking about then, uh, it kind of sounds like self-worth as well. Mm. Identification of mm. being self-reflective, but having self-worth. Yeah, as well. allowing yourself to think I'm a good person and have that self-love, yeah. What even just knowing your capabilities and possibilities and being kind within that, which yes. I've definitely struggled with in the past, not to turn it in a therapy session, but I come Life back to the word... Yeah, <laughs> big fan of it. I come back to the word of relevance a lot, huh. and maybe that's the wrong word that I'm trying to describe my self-worth to. I need to feel relevant. Oh, right, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. And that's quite a, uh, an ego-driven thing, but it's yep. not. I actually Because mm. there's that ego versus spirit, right? Constantly in identification of who oh, you yeah. are. Yeah. And it's the two wolves, right, inside you. Which one? Yeah. The dark one and the light one. Mm-hmm. Which survives? Whichever you feed. You yes. know, and it's, so it's just like that. And the ego is definitely the dark wolf, and you don't want to do too many things which serve mm-hmm. your ego constantly. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it's the spirit that you mm. need to fill and keep feeding. But 
I don't know how that. I'm still figuring that shit out, even at 47. You oh, know? No, I'm like going. Keep figuring it. So yeah, so when you got to practice like yoga and you got the language around that and you're trying to introduce these concepts, mm. can that be both a a additive and amplification way? Because you're now feeling your body, you're feeling yourself, mm. but you're also then asking questions in that modality of movement and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I would imagine for some people as well, they need a different type of physical cue to then ask those questions or maybe not maybe we are that universal that we need to kind of have like Brené Brown innately good with all these little creatures that mm. think we're so special but we're all little cliches mm. and that's of, okay yeah I mean um, it's funny because when you say relevance I want to say relevant to what because I think I see exactly what you're saying it's like because we're social beings and so am I relevant to the collective am I relevant to the group mm is what I'm doing mattering to them and then but does it matter to me am I relevant to myself and I think there's definitely a dance and a balance there and you can all think about those examples in history you know like Van Gogh like died poor and or all those people that um, people like they were um, crazy mad person and then posthumously like decades later we're like they were a genius and so it was relevant to them but it wasn't yet relevant to the collective Mm. Mm. or you read about the great heroes of um like racial justice movements and then you hear that they were really outspoken and really passionate and so that's going to rub a lot of people up the wrong way in their times Mm. of their lives and i think it's such a heavy thing to carry and how do you stay true to what you believe in, even when the pressure of the collective is like, yeah. weirdo, something wrong with you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I've got more <laughs> questions than answers, you know, which is probably the best way to live. I think I so. hope to find better questions Yeah. than, than answers. Yeah, um, that's true. I don't know. But going back to your very briefly, your yoga practice, like what has mm. it taught you then? What is it? given you specifically? I think um, a big part of what it's given me is um, being able to notice the stories I'm telling myself and then tracking them, having a line of sight back to where did that come from? Did that come back to my ego? Um, Did it come, did it go back to something that I was told really early on in my life as a little girl? Mm. Um, And what, how is it serving me? Like, if I believe that thought, what, um, what's going to happen? What does it tell me about my future? Is that going to set me on the path to the life that I want? Um, and if not, wow. what story could I be telling myself now? So I often um, try and encourage and invite my yoga students. Um, I have a conversation with that inner voice, like notice your inner dialogue. And there's a line that I like to say that, it's, that I stole from Ashley Turner, a great yoga teacher, that... Um, your inner dialogue is the number one key determinant of the quality of your life. And it lands. And totally. I even like to say, and I think I sound like, sometimes I'm like, oh, it's so woo-woo, but I just got to search them. <laughs> like, mm. um, the, the architecture or the infrastructure of your thoughts will build the infrastructure of your life. Mm. And so it's sort of like keeping your brain in check, like um, in terms of the physiology, like yoga, you study anatomy, physiology, religion, philosophy. It's like, so I'm like, everyone go do yoga teacher training and like talk about this, but... The brain is just another organ. And when you think about like evolutionarily how this biological electrical organ evolved, it's, you know, it's got to process information that comes from many other places like our skin, mm. our eyes, our nose, our 
our gut, our intuition. And so it's like acknowledging what the brain is contributing to our life experience and our perception, but keeping it in check when it starts to go, what's that saying? It's a great servant, but a poor master. Mm. So I think yoga's taught me, keep it short, Frida. <laughs> um, you know, to pause and to breathe and go back into my heart. Like, what is, what is the wisdom angle here? Um, and keeping the, the ego in check. And, you know, yoga just has so many beautiful lessons that I need reminders, I need daily practice. You know, what's more important here, being right or finding the best thing, which yeah. means being open to other people's. You must get that all the time, right? Like, um, in communities, sort of working with communities, like everyone's got their opinion and it's like letting go of being right to find the better thing. That's just a, that's just a life thing for so many of us, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's pretty cool. Yeah. Your whole disruption it? was pretty cool. Might be. Yeah. Give it, give it a go. Give most things a go. Hmm. Have you ever tried yoga? I've not. I, I do morning stretches, which uh, resemble the, uh, the sun salutations. So I go oh, through nice. a, a ten-minute stretch, but that's oh, so but that's the that's the extent of. Yeah. I, I'm more about stretching than yeah. probably being as mindful as I need to. But it's nice. It's a nice little ten minutes every morning to mm. yeah. loosen the body up and just think about the day that's ahead. Yeah, yeah. You feel you feel better afterwards. Sort of say motion is lotion, and they also say issues in the tissues. <laughs> like, you know, you can see it in people's bodies the way they sit, the way they hold themselves, where the tension is. It, um, it tells a lot to people who know what they're looking at, and I swear I'm still learning it, about the stories they're telling themselves yeah. and about how they're carrying their life experience, how they're carrying those stories. You know, when you've got that hunched over, like, you know, the throat chakra yeah. is where you carry your truth. If you don't believe in, um, you know, feel you can express your truth, it starts to hunch over. And so there's, so, there's really cool stuff in that. I recognize that with my speaker coaching. Yeah, You know, you the would. physical... Yeah. Representation of the narrative that's going on in your brain. Hmm. Yeah. And and that more so when I used to do it in person. Yeah, because so, you see so more. to illustrate that if someone's on the side of the stage, I'll straight away know if they're ready or not by how they're standing hmm. and how they're looking. Yeah, I mean, wow. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense, but you can also do Jedi mind tricks on them. You can like teach them to go, You're not nervous, you're excited. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they hold like these you was just demonstrating they go from this to because they're mm -hmm. now nervous to excited mm. they come up they come open they fill themselves with air nice. because of, yeah it's and this is the body informing the brain so we let the mind inform the body yeah. all the time but you can turn that information yeah. highway back that way because yeah. um, breath is so powerful right apparently if you take a big breath and you slow down the exhale it tells your limbic brain i'm safe and it will start to relax you really quickly yeah and we do that. Like I was down in Christchurch right. two weeks ago helping uh, a big event down there and been coaching some of the speakers. So before we went on, I got a little thing on my, my phone, a little gif, the just little uh, breathing experience. Remember I showed mm -hmm. it at, with your, your peeps, uh, which just con contracts, contracts and expands, right? And it just slows down your breathing with a visual representation mm. of really slowing you down. And mm. it's, it's forcing you to hold your breath, slow it down, both in and out. And because of the pace, it also, you're taking in a little bit too much and you breathe out a bit too much, which again, chills the parasympathetic system and everything else. And you see people, once they do that, their shoulders start to drop because they're breathing out and they go. Yeah. And I keep your shoulders there rather than yeah. bring them back. And then the tension falls and it's, yeah, it's a nice, neat little Jedi mind trick to help mm. people with. 
yeah. um, in terms of not just the physical breathing, but then the validation of you're not nervous, you're excited. Yeah. You're not nervous. And that excited. reframing is just so critical, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just a reframing. Yeah. yeah. And straight away it changes the voice and everything else because yeah. now they've got more air. And most people think that when they speak too quickly, they, it's the speaking that's a problem, not it's the breathing that's the problem. Mm. You know, if you control your breathing, you'll slow down your speech. Yeah, because mm. you're sucking a lot in and trying to get everything out of one certain thing. But if you slow down and then breathe in, people will wait for you to breathe. And mm. you've got more breath to then pace it out. Mm, powerful. That's some of the recognition, you know, similar things. Yeah. But in terms of like emergency mm. disaster recovery, you know, controlling people's emotions mm. and, and helping them with narratives and reframing, I'm sure mm. that's part of what you do, right? Or think about. Yep. Yeah, and I, I think just to that to that note of like, you're more capable than you probably think you are. You're mm. you're, you're a better emergency okay. manager than you know, just come back to that, right? Because I think that's a huge part of it is is people are more capable than they think they're themselves mm. to be. Yeah, and what are the kind of language uses that you've had to pick up over the years that you kind of like? Oh, I discover that some language is probably powerful uh, as a tool, mm-hmm. as well as not just the resources, but Language as a tool? Uh, language as a tool, yes. I think mm. metaphors, you know, just I think right. framing, like we were talking about earlier, for example, like Wellington is beautiful because of the earthquakes. Yeah, mm. complete reframe for me. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and so, like, we're grateful for this beauty because of these things. Um, yeah. Just doing that off, often reduces the threat element to it right okay um Could you I, mean, I don't know i don't know how you just experienced that but just just that little bit of reframing does kind of help like oh that's that's you know that's that's why we're here and then just the subtleties and in, in how we talk about um what preparedness is and how people are already more prepared and they can move the needle in little ways mm. um yeah. i think one one thing in the past when i certainly started I was like this giant checklist of like you have to do all these things yeah, yeah. yeah right and i don't buy that at all i mean people you know people have a lot of it's not about stuff it's about really the the thing we push from a narrative point of view as well is it's who's in your emergency kit right not mm. not what's oh, in nice. your emergency kit right because it's who's we draw we draw yeah. on those relationships mm. every day to get us through <laughs> life and we draw on relationships in times of emergency and stress as well so mm. you know those, those are little things that we i think we try to bring to it um to frame capability and what really matters to people mm-hmm. a little bit differently. I think that's so powerful that like, even when you said you can move the needle a little, a little bit, I felt empowered. I was like, I can do that. Yeah. Um, and I, I see a lot Good, of... Good, it works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My work here is done. <laughs> I can leave. <laughs> yeah, sweet. Bring on the earthquake. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Touch wood. <laughs> yeah. uh, no earthquake yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think it's funny because you see the same ideas being talked about in climate change narratives mm. that... You can switch people off when you make it daunting and scary. It's like this big thing. You got to do this. We got to all stop doing this. We got to stop the cars, you know. And it's like, well, you just disempowered everybody. They feel hopeless. Like we want them to feel hopeful. And exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's funny when you talk about who's not who, not what, but who's in your mm. um, emergency management. I always there's sometimes somehow that line has come into my life where you're always like, I'd want them on my Armageddon team. Like if <laughs> Armageddon came around, I want them in my team. <laughs> like, some people just seem yeah. to like cope in any situation. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Mm. There's some people you want always on your team. Yeah. Yes. Utility people. <laughs> but also it makes me think about when you're saying that older people who live alone 
And it's right. like, so there's that necessity of connection, not just for socially, for emotions, but for emergencies. Like, how do you deal with that part of the community? Yeah, and that's, I mean, we, you know, and there's a growing trend of loneliness happening, mm. right? And so, I mean, yeah. in many respects, I think that's, that's the day-to-day emergency that, what happens in emergency management, too, it's is... gradual. Yeah, everything, everything that's happening day-to-day either gets amplified to be better or worse, hmm. right? So whatever's uh, kind of working well will shine and whatever's mm. struggling will will it look better. Right, look so worse, it right? finds the weaknesses in the system, mm-hmm. and, it find, yeah. and it finds the strengths in the system, yeah. right? And so people that are um, on their own already are, you know, more likely to be on their own, and and that's and that's a real risk. And so um, that's where the system and communities are so important. You know, our our day to day community development teams mm. at councils and all the NGOs doing great work out there, helping link people in just to day-to-day activities, mm. like those are, yeah. those are some of the most important emergency management lines out there. Mm. It's, not, it's not just the kind of the people like myself going into an EOC, it's, it's everybody actually working at the coalface. We saw that in COVID time and time again. Yeah, COVID. people doing shop in front of the people. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah. right? Like simple that's, stuff. That's but all emergency management. Should. You know, it just reframes yeah, like, yeah. mm-hmm. those, those, are, those were people looking after other members of society. So it's and random so the, acts of kindness mm, as well in some mm, ways. Yeah, and, and that's what mm. we see. Uh, so yeah, it's, I think that's that reframing is something that we're just we're really passionate about. Is, is mm-hmm. you don't need this top down. Something is going to come save the day in a uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's the beauty of of everybody around us as part of the mm-hmm. solution. And that comes back to everyday stuff too, right? Mm-hmm. True. So so yeah. In terms of the the dangers. In terms of the danger list, I suppose I don't know if there's the danger a list. list. I don't know. I just made that shit up. I That's like the idea yeah. in Remo. There's I'm a intrigued. danger list. I'm intrigued. Yeah, and there's like the top danger at the time, which could be random, like you know, kind of whatever it is. Yep. Is there though uh, an understanding of percentage risk of certain disasters mm-hmm. that can happen within Wellington and the region. I, I don't want to know the percentage risk of you, the next earthquake. I, I'm not looking for the numbers, but I'm yeah. just thinking about, like, obviously, yeah. earthquake right. we've touched on, which is probably one of the major ones, I would yeah. imagine, because of the not only the devastation, but the widespread devastation on all the facets. But mm-hmm. then, what are the other ones? So, I mean, you generally have, you know, risk is likelihood times uh, prob- uh, impact. Like, right. Uh, so, so low, right. low probability earthquake, crazy high impact. Right. Um, okay. I, we, in our, as part of our work, we have to list all the big risks for the region. Ironically, uh-huh. uh, we did that, was it the end of 2018? We do it every five years. Yeah. We do an assessment and the number one risk, any guesses? I want to now ironically say something like a communicable disease or yeah, something. Yeah, it was. It was pandemic. Right. Oh. When you look at, when you look at, yeah, yeah. So uh, that was, that was the number one. We, so you actually, nailed it. Um, Why was that up because of things So you just, there's there. some analysis and you look at what's probability. Okay. And the probability was pretty high and the impact was relatively high. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we'd, we'd trained so a, the whole year for previous it. for a pandemic. It was, it was, we have, we have a, we have a, I I blame one of the other managers who has has an awkward accuracy on saying this is the exercise this year, and then that that playing out. So get a witch, burn them. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Kind of good, right? If you go, a nose wasn't wasted training, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah, COVID and is so it. But come back. There's all there's there's you know there's there's risks all around us, right? Mm. And I I generally don't like to 
worry too much, focus on that. I think it's more around just coming back. And I'll just, I've probably broken record here. Is how do you how do you navigate emergencies every day in your life? And it's mm. and it's with some basic stuff and basic uh, relationships that we have around us, right? Yeah. Mm. And, and oh, that's, that's so critical. Mm. Just just the connectedness of communities is such a is such a critical element mm. to that. I think that is um, such a key word for me in my day job is interconnectivity or interconnectedness. Mm. And and actually to go a little bit woo woo and then I'll bring it back. Deepak Chopra. Uh-huh. Um, I remember reading something by him about ten years ago where he said, ironically, the internet has brought us closer than ever before, or closer for a long time to our true state, which is that we're all connected. Yep. And I was like, that's kind of cool because we immediately start to disconnect when we make a judgment about someone, oh, you're dressed like that, you're that, or, you know, there's, um, there's opportunities to connect or disconnect all the time, and it's about what we're looking for. Like, if you look for the similar thing in someone, you'll find it. You can always find it. And I feel like, um, yeah, so what can we do to make people want to look for the similarities versus the, the differences? But also coming back to sort of, you know, the value of connection, um, I think about silos in public sector and in local government and in workplaces and that more and more we're finding that um, the, like in terms of the disruption that we're facing, we need that diversity of the way of people thinking and, um, you know, multiple partners working in different sectors to come together mm-hmm. and share information. And I sort of, for me personally, I find it like a thing that I love doing. I love pick up the phone and like connect. Hey, come to this meeting. And I know um, some people view it as a risk or it's, oh, we're not going to meet the deadline. And and so, I don't know, how do you find that in your work of, um, yeah, just kind of building connections and convincing the upper layers of the organization maybe to um, to support that and to not be scared of, you know, sharing information for the greater good and things like that. Yeah, and that and, and that really is dependent as you know as you're getting you're experiencing in government too, right? Like there's there's some people that are more open to that, and some people that are more fearful of that. The risk associated with people derailing the timeline, mm. and you know, I, I would I would offer that if you don't get that kind of diversity of engagement and buy-in, it, you gotta you gotta meander a little bit. You have to have a process, but you also have to allow for a little bit of meandering and certainly open the door for those counter opinions um, because when we get to the end project uh, and roll it out it's just going to take longer if, mm, if you true. don't get the buy-in yeah right? yeah you're, not you, you're just going to it's just going to take yeah it's going to take that much longer and, and um, i'm sure we can think of all kinds of examples we've seen in yeah. in local and central government that have rolled out like that right and, mm. um yeah and you know and not not to to bad planning per se but but maybe not taking the time to get that good engagement at the outset. So one of the things that you know, my team has a, that we really try to cultivate is um, they've got part of their KPIs built of just drinking coffee with people. I mean, that is a, that is a measurable KPI. Dream boss, dream job. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, but it's, it's, it's critical because yeah. mm, if you don't invest in that, then you're just charging to the output. Yeah. And then the output, how meaningful is the, how meaningful is the output, right? So we had, yeah, uh, yeah. It's I, hmm. that is, I think, when part of my job then is to advocate for my team when there's the friction above. Mm-hmm. That's part of my job as a manager to say, I know this is probably, you know, we've had a we've had a slowdown or we've had this, um, but we're hmm. going to get, you know, we've got to trust in getting the engagement. Sometimes it's walking away to re-engage later too, right? Yeah, Not, mm-hmm. we, nice. we we we. Uh, 
we had this amazing speaker a few years ago come and talk to us. She really highlighted a line that's always stuck with me, which is, in government, we are paid to keep the door open. Right? And, and by that, not all communities are always ready to engage. And, and, and right. I think as we're you know, <clears throat> starting to widen our engagement with Mirai, like a lot of government agencies are, you know, mm. not, they're not always in a position to engage right mm. now. And so we've got to respect that. They might not be in that position, but we're the ones that are paid to keep that door open to engage at the right time. That's lovely. It, it is, is nice. lovely, isn't it? That is yeah. really nice. It, it is. It is. It's a beautiful metaphor. That's um, yeah, yeah. Mm. And so that you know, that's that's the kind of thing that it's our job in, in leadership position to navigate that interface where my team is able to go out and do the important mahi, and then I can help mm. um, provide that cover if, if things are meandering a little bit. And that's just that's part cool. of that's just part of community development. Yeah, mm. that's a cool little nice. trick right there. I'm aware yeah. of your time, but also have we not? Covered anything that you want to ask? Oh, I've I've got one for yes. for my uh, for my daughter who I've got two little girls, six and nine, uh-huh. um, and she's obsessed with all things Harry Potter. And okay, <laughs> like that's all we talk about in uh-huh. our house is, is right. Harry Potter. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, which house do, would you belong to? Which house do you belong to in Harry Potter world? Any guesses or? If you're, you might, you, don't, you might not be too familiar with those things, and that's okay. I'm not super familiar. That's okay. Can you Sorry, give me some like, characteristics of that? Oh, <laughs> there's the Slytherin. There's Slytherin, which the na- naughty people are in. Clever. Usually. They're clever, clever. but conniving. Um, yeah. Forgive the fly people watching. There's what was Harry? Ravenclaw. Ravenclaw. They're, they're the, quite the intellectual group. Yes. Okay. There's. There's Gryffindor. Gryffindor is what Harry's in. Yeah. They're the bold ones. They're, yes. And what's the fourth? Um, Hufflepuff, which is... Uh, the, I'm a Hufflepuff. They're, 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 <laughs> the, they're, they're the hardworking, loyal, but maybe boring ones. Uh-huh. I'm going with Hufflepuff because that sounds like a dog. And I love dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Just solid. Has Dopey, fun. but loyal. <laughs> I'm pretty loyal. Yeah. Yeah. Where no, would you put the, you, though? Well, I've done oh, yeah. the test. There's a lot yeah, of tests. Exactly. We do a lot of. We've done them all. <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm I'm definitely a multi-test Hufflepuff. Oh my there gosh! Go. Three Hufflepuffs. Yeah. Well, that's a win, man. That's there we go. She so psychologically hopefully... analyzed you through the Harry Potter. Lens. <laughs> exactly. She'll be judging all of us now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Your daughter'll be like, mm, I thought that, mm. and kind of like, what the hell. She got judged. It's fantastic. <gasps> okay. So in terms of managing our time, and and thank you again. But let's leave with a nice juicy question around. Courage, because the tagline is Courageous Conversations with Bold Humans. You're here because you're bold. Let's talk about courage and what that means for your work slash practice slash life. Like what, what is courage for you? Um, courage, I think, is um, it's partly... Um, that complete candid honesty with yourself so that um, ownership of um, things that have happened in your life, owning your part in things and the courage to kind of name that when you need to, to others. That courage is also that vulnerability to go first and sort of, um, yeah, Mm. something around, yeah, just that, that truth with yourself, yeah. 
Cause love that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't take that. That's lovely. Let's go with that. It is lovely. I like that. Okay. Going first, I liked as well. In conversations. You made me go first about going first. <sighs> yeah, sorry about that. No, but I meant what you said about going first as well. Sometimes mm. we're not, especially as males, not, you know, mm. just saying that we don't go first very often in terms of that vulnerability and that emotion. Maybe no one feels like they do. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. How about you, Dan? I think it's. I think it is. Is that tapping into when something's in your gut, mm. and you know it's. That's the right thing to do. Mm. Is is being willing to tap into that, and lean into whatever voice or action, that's required to mm. realize, that that thing that's there. So, um, whether that's you know speaking out individually for what you think is right or challenging the system mm. um, to make the world a better place or to get better, get, you know, to make the world a better place mm. um, and putting yourself out there to be willing to take some, some punches along yeah. that journey is, is, I guess, a way of looking at what mm. courage is to me anyway. That's a good one as well. That's really lovely. That's lovely. And the you. finger. Hello. <laughs> um, I'm going to go in a slightly different direction just because I've had a couple of conversations of late with some people who are struggling. And I think it's, courage can also be just surviving for mm. some people. Mm. Oh, yeah. You know, getting up in the morning for some people mm-hmm. is a courageous act. Absolutely. And it's like, you know, it's a simple idea, but just functioning as a human being for some people is a challenge. Uh-huh. And and we kind of relegate that to well, of course you got to get up and have a shower and sort yourself out. But some people, mm. that's yeah. like that's the hard thing. So even doing that, mm. like it's not about cheerleading and celebrating that, but it's also about recognizing yeah, yeah. for Absolutely. some people that's an, mm. that's enough for the day and or oh, that mm. was amazing. Yeah, and then coming back to verbalizing and articulating current st- mental health states for some people is amazing or saying actually that makes me feel uncomfortable that's an act mm. of courage mm. and yeah. yeah always try to spot those little things rather than lovely. the bold i've got a big flag and i'm running down the street true like, cool but yeah because it's like functioning yeah that african proverb we're only as strong as the weakest in the tribe we're only mm. as fast as the slowest and so um i love what you touched on there because um the universal human experience it's not all joy and rainbow and butterflies yeah. right it's it's tough times and it's um, when we alienate people because of that or when no one wants to be around that energy, it's sort of telling them somehow that it's wrong, but it's mm. happening. They're human. Therefore, it is part of the human experience. Yeah. And so when we can mm. cast the net wider and say all of that is um, it's happening and it's okay and we're in this together mm. um, and put a bit more love into that, I guess, and, and allowing it, there's that book and that concept, Wintering, and it's like nature does it, you know, it sheds its leaves, mm-hmm. it dies. Oh, it's, right, okay. And it's like humans do it too. We have really dark seasons. And mm. like in yoga, we talk about just sitting with it, be with the feeling without having to interpret it, getting the story, the judgment, and then it yes. will allow it. You know, what we resist persists. And I don't know. It Wintering adds for humans. rambles to your... No, that's, that's, that's good. I like that, actually. Yeah, yeah allowing yeah, ourselves to allowing, have... Allowing yourself that. That's yeah, nice. Yeah, I'm just feeling a bit bland and... Ooh, it's okay. We don't give ourselves enough of that permission. No, there's mm. expectation. I was listening to this thing yeah. the other day. So much suffering is because of expectations. Mm. Either others are our own 
Yeah. And in the last couple of years, I definitely have used the phrase a lot more uh, around the idea of, you know, surviving is thriving at the moment. Yes. Because a lot of people are going the other way, you know, because mm. of COVID and health and so we're lucky whatever. Right? And yeah, the world around you and politics and, you know, family breakdown or business falling apart because of COVID, whatever reasons. It's like, no, you, you're doing good, you know, just by being. Yep. Yeah. Mm. That's an achievement in current climes. Nice. So, yeah. Huh, I feel like I'm all hmm now. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Loved it. Yes, yeah, it's been delightful. That was Creative Welly, episode 35. Thank you for giving us your attention. Big shout out to John O'Tucker, who produces this unique video podcast. Check us out on creativewelly.com for that video, but also check out John over at Empire Films. Big shout out as well to David Hamilton from Flash Dog Studios for hosting us as well. You've been listening to Creative Welly episode 35, where we have courageous conversations with bold humans, and I hope you're having them too. Take care until next time.